Grace, mercy, and peace are yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My brothers, my sisters in Christ. It's the first day of school. Kids are pouring into the school, pouring into a classroom. The bell rings, they take their seat. The teacher is at the front. He turns around to the whiteboard and he starts writing. Don't answer your phone in class, he writes. Keep your phone on silent. Keep your phone in your pocket. Raise your hand before you go to the restroom. Raise your hand before you sharpen your pencil. Raise your hand before you grab a Kleenex. Don't talk while I'm talking. Don't talk while someone else is talking. And on and on until he's written 60 rules on his whiteboard. At the same time, in a different classroom, a teacher does the same thing. Kids are pouring in, the bell rings, they get ready for class. She turns around, she writes on the whiteboard just one thing. This class is an environment for learning and discussion. Do your part to keep it that way. Now, which class is going to have better behavior? I know there's a lot of you who have thought a lot about this. This is kind of in your area of expertise, so I'm not trying to tell you stuff you already know. But it's a little complicated, isn't it? On the one hand, the first teacher has made behavior, good behavior, very easy, yet complicated. It's easy. All a student has to do is think about what they're about to do, look at the board and all those rules, and see if it matches one of those rules or if they're not allowed to do it. The second teacher has made good behavior simple, but very difficult, hasn't she? She has given the, the students in her class one thing to keep in their minds, and they have to figure out how to behave according to this one philosophy, keeping the classroom environment safe and a good place for discussion. This is the difference Jesus is striking between what he's saying and what the Pharisees have been saying. It was a week ago that we took our next look at Jesus's sermon on the mount, but Jesus, in his mind, he has just been talking. It's the very next sentence. So Jesus is explaining what he meant when he said that he didn't come to introduce a new law, but that he came to explain what the law of God has always been about, the moral will of God, and explain that it's the Pharisees and the religious teachers of their day that are making it way too complicated in an effort to make God's will easier for us to follow. And Jesus grabs a couple of examples to show it. So let's say you hate your brother. You think he's an idiot. He does nothing but make your life worse, and you often think about how better your life would be if he weren't alive anymore. You go to a Pharisee and you say, am I sinning by having this attitude? And the Pharisee says to you, well, it depends. Have you tried to kill him? Have you told him how you feel? Have you called him a fool in front of other people? Have you done anything? Have you lifted a hand against him? If not, no, I don't, I don't think you've really sinned. Jesus says, though, anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Yes, even our feelings of hatred are sinful. 
Or let's say you are particularly smitten with a young man or a young woman. You think about them all the time. You imagine what it would be like to share a bed with them, even for just one night. And you imagine what that would be like. Often you go to a Pharisee and you say, am I sinning? Have I committed adultery? And the Pharisee would say, "Uh, it depends. Are you married? Have you told this person how you feel? Have you laid a hand on them? Have you made advances on them? If not, I don't see what the big deal is. If you are married, just be sure to write a certificate of divorce for your wife or your husband so that you can go pursue this person. Then you're not committing adultery. Whereas Jesus says, anyone who lusts after someone else has already committed adultery with them in their heart. What is Jesus doing? Is he determined to keep us from having any fun? Is he painting us into an even smaller corner? What Jesus is doing is he's revealing what the Pharisees had obscured with their complicated questions. Well, it depends. It doesn't depend. God has one thing for us to keep in mind, one philosophy to live our lives by, and that is the philosophy of holiness. God in his law, his moral will for us is that we be holy. And holiness is more than just committing the big sins of murder and adultery and deceit. Even non-Christians believe that that's wrong, don't they? The kind of holiness God demands, wants from us, is a whole being kind of holiness. Not just the things your hands do, but the things your brain thinks, the feelings your heart feels. Those need to be holy. And the kind of holiness God wants us to act is found in love. It was Elie Wiesel, the survivor of the Nazi death camp Auschwitz, who said, the opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is indifference. Even hateful anger toward my brother or my sister in humanity is indifference to them. Because I'm thinking of them only as a fool, only as an idiot. I'm defining them by the worst thing that they've done or their most egregious offense against me, not as a human being as they are. I'm indifferent to their humanity. Lust, fantasizing about someone, is being indifferent because you're treating the person like an object that exists only for your pleasure, not as a human being with wants and desires and abilities and goals for themselves, with personhood. Our sinful nature wants to be indifferent to our neighbor when God calls us to love our neighbor. And if our sinful nature is given full force, free reign, we will even become indifferent to God. Because we will treat God just like a rule maker. Like as long as we're obeying those 60 rules on the board, then we can pretty much do whatever we want, find pleasure in whatever ways that we want. We end up treating our neighbor as either an object to derive pleasure from or as an obstacle to be pushed out of our way on our, on our journey for self-seeking pleasure. And we'll treat God the same way. And so it was the Pharisees that said, my worship life is none of your business. If I bring a sacrifice to the temple, what does it matter what I'm thinking about my brother or sister? But that, too, is against the holiness that God requires 
God doesn't want us to separate worship from him from love for our neighbor. God wants us to see worship, love for our neighbor as worshiping him to the point where in holiness we wouldn't even bring a sacrifice to his altar if we still held a grudge against someone. God wants us to be so concerned with holiness that we would rather cut off a limb than sin against his will. Now Jesus is preaching this sermon to wake people up to their relationship with God and what it is really based on. Up to this point, many people thought that as long as they kept those 60 rules on the board, that God would be fine with them or God would get off their back. But Jesus gets to the heart of the law and he reveals how crushing it actually is. Who of us has loved our neighbor as ourself to this extent? None of us. Whether your primary temptation is towards sexual lust or hateful anger or deceit or greed or whatever it is for you, all of us have failed to give God the holiness he requires. But here's the thing. The holy God who demands holiness from us is the same loving God who gives holiness to us. How does he do it? In one word, grace. It is by grace that you are saved, the Apostle Paul writes. It is by grace that Jesus is standing here on the hillside preaching this sermon. Can you imagine what was going on in Jesus' heart as he was preaching this sermon, preaching against sins that he, as God, knows everyone in the crowd has committed? Jesus preaching this sermon to us now, knowing full well our sinful history. Jesus preaching this sermon, identifying the will of God and showing us how far we've fallen short. Meanwhile, he is on his way to die on a cross for those very sins. Jesus awakening us to the ways we've fallen short of God's will but he himself standing there is God's answer to our unholiness. For God sent his son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. None of us have fulfilled God's will for us to be holy, but Jesus did. Jesus never raised his voice in anger against his neighbor in a way that was unrighteous. He never lusted after anyone, but treated his neighbor with nothing but the utmost respect and love and service. Why? To procure for you a holiness that is now given to you through faith. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not just the example we should follow. He certainly is an example we should follow, but Jesus' perfection is yours now through faith in him. No matter how unholy you feel, no matter what feelings the will of God as Jesus unfolds it, drudges up in your heart feelings of guilt, of having fallen short, Jesus went to that cross for you. And now you are holy in his sight. You are wrapped in the righteousness of Christ like a newborn baby in the hospital, swaddled in fresh clean, pristine 
linens. That's you. God has restored you to be the image bearer, to be his ambassador on his earth that you were meant to be. The opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference, brothers and sisters, and God is so not indifferent to you. He loves you. That's why he reveals his will to you. He wants you to see how much he has done for you through Christ. He wants you to see what his will is for you now, that you are completely forgiven, that you are in Christ, that your relationship has been restored. Let's return to our teacher example for a second. What kind of relationship will the students have with the first teacher, the one with the 60 rules on the board? I'm a guess, probably not a great one. They're probably going to think of him just as a rule keeper, that all they have to do is keep those rules and they will escape his notice. So if you're someone who has struggled with your vision of your relationship with God, thinking of God as a rule keeper, that's not a great place to be in, is it? Because that's not a meaningful relationship. But God is not quite like the second teacher either. It's true he has given us one philosophy to live our lives by, love your neighbor as yourself. But he also gives us the power to do it. He gives us his grace. How does someone, a man or a woman, imbued with the grace of God, now restored as an image bearer, as God's ambassador on earth, how does someone bear God's image out? How does does someone live for God in their relationships? Well, a Christian husband will love his wife. That means a lot more than just being attracted to her. That means treating her as she is as the woman God has placed in his life and him in hers to serve and to love and to respect and to treat every other woman in the world as not his wife, as sisters to be loved and served as well, but to not be tempted to lust after them or to think about them in that way, to wish what it would be like if they would be his wife instead because they simply aren't, that his wife is the one that God has placed in his life and no one else. So she deserves his love and service. A Christian single person will follow God's will for marriage by rejecting the sexual advances of even the most attractive person in the world, of turning off the TV when it shows a show or a movie that seems to be inciting our lusts or passions, of closing out that computer browser if what's on that screen isn't helpful, doesn't show love to people. Christian will refuse to think of other people as objects or obstacles, but as human beings whom God has created. How does a Christian live out God's image, be God's ambassador in conflict? They won't wait for an apology to forgive. If they have sinned, they will apologize themselves. They will be quick to reconcile. They will sow seeds of love to put an end to conflict before it even starts if they can. They will show God's love in the way that they respond to other people. A Christian will show God's image, will be his ambassador on earth by speaking the truth. By not relying on oaths, I swear to God, to get people to believe them, but to cultivate a reputation of saying what they mean and meaning what they say. And if you're like me, even after the reassurance of the forgiveness of Christ, 
even after the knowledge of the gospel, you go back to God's will as revealed in Matthew 5 and you say, man, that's really hard, isn't it? Because our sinful nature still plagues us, still wants nothing to do with the holiness that God requires. Our sinful nature is tempted by the devil when our sinful nature says that we are missing out if we try to follow God's will. And the devil says that, are you serious? Do you really think that God wants your praises, the sinner that you are, the things that you have done with your history, that God wants you in his family? When that happens, keep it simple. Rely on God's grace. Take your sinful nature back to the cross to show that you are reconciled to God, that you live a new life now. Take the devil back to the cross where his defeat is shown for sure to show that you are Christ's child. Jesus says this stuff about hacking off our limbs. Is he he being literal? When we are tempted, should we literally cut off our our hands and gouge out our eyes? I'm going to say no, because you know as well as I do, as well as Jesus does, that physical impairment does not stop temptation, nor does it stop sin. The meaning behind what Jesus is saying metaphorically here is as one church father once said, I cannot stop the birds from flying over my head. What I can do is stop them from building a nest in my hair and pecking off my nose. In other words, when temptation comes, and it surely will, brothers and sisters, it did for Jesus, it will for you and me, that we don't give it a home in our minds, that we don't nurse temptation so that it can give birth to action, but that we cut it off at its source, And we say to temptation, get behind me, Satan. Because our relationship with God is too precious to allow anything to threaten it. Our Lord and Savior Jesus has done so much for us and called us into a new life. We rely on God's grace even to fight temptation. So God is a lot like the second teacher in our example. He gives us one thing to have in our minds, his grace. His grace is the rule for our lives. It's our reason for living. It's our reason for having confidence because we know that God's grace is what defines us, not our sinful history. We also rely on God's grace as the power to do what he wants us to do, as the definition for how we are to praise and thank him for how good he has been to us. So in your life of faith, in your walk with God, your walk with Jesus, just keep it simple. It's all about God's grace. Amen.